Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am once again your host, the one and only Kid Kong. Now, I find it kind of funny that last week I chose to do The Muppets because while I had intended on doing Lawless, I felt that covering a second Tom Hardy movie in a row right after I had done the first one would have been a bit much, especially after going through a trilogy where it was the same actress for the most part, and I wanted to try and do something different. So I talked about the Muppets. Well, ironically, the movie I'm going to be talking about today has an appearance by Frank Oz, who of course is well known as Muppet character voices, as well as the voice of Yoda in Star Wars. So it's, uh, that's what you call ironic is what that is. But today we're going to be talking about the 1981 cult classic film, An American Werewolf in London. This is actually my favorite Halloween film to watch, period, like around Halloween time. This is my favorite scary movie. It was directed and written by John Landis. Now, as far as just directing goes, John Landis has done Animal House, Trading Places, Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, Coming to America, The Stupids, among others. However, films that he has both directed and written include Coming Soon, The Twilight Zone movie from 1983, Susan's Plan, and of course, my all-time favorite film, The Blues Brothers as well as its completely unnecessary and not well done at all sequel, Blues Brothers 2000, which is really unfortunate because I love John Goodman, and of course I'm a big fan of Dan Aykroyd. So. The production company for this film was Polygram Productions. Now, I don't often talk about production companies when doing these episodes. However, it is important to note that while this company is no longer active, this was a big production company. I mean, they did Flashdance, Clue, all four of the 1980s to 1990s Batman films. That's Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin. They also did Drop Dead Fred, two of the Candyman movies, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Mr. Holland's Opus, which is another personal favorite movie, the movie Kazam, and of course, you can't mention a cult classic without mentioning anything else like that, and that would be The Big Lebowski. Universal Studios headed the United States distribution, and this was released on August 21st of 1981. It was produced on a budget of $5.8 million and pulled in nearly $62 million at the box office. Now, to give you a brief rundown of this film, the characters of David and Jack are backpackers who are just making their way through London. They're just out of college. And they come across a little village, go into a bar, uh, accidentally offend the locals and are told they have to leave and told to steer clear of the moors. They do not steer clear of the moors and they are attacked by a werewolf that kills Jack while cursing David. And the rest of the movie plays out as David discovering he is a werewolf and ultimately causing all kinds of havoc while he is in London. This film was met with tremendous critical and commercial success. It is considered one of the greatest cult classic films of all time, and it won multiple awards as well as being a record-setting award-winning film, and I'll set, get to that here shortly. The main character of David Kessler, who is the titular American werewolf, was played by David Naughton. Now, David Naughton was in Midnight Madness, Hot Dog the Movie, The Boy in Blue, Private Affairs, Urban Safari, and The Big Bad Wolf, which is probably because he was in this film. However, television-wise, he's probably best known for his run on My Sister Sam, where he appeared in 44 episodes. However, he had a multiple-episode arc in JAG, as well as appearing in the Seinfeld episode, The Red Dot. 
Nurse Alex Price was played by Jenny Aguter, who is probably without question best known for her um, role in Logan's Run. However, she's also appeared in the 1989 film The Dark Tower, Child's Play 2, Dark Man, and she appeared in the MCU in both Avengers and Captain America and the Winter Soldier as one of the three, one of the international heads of S.H.I.E.L.D. Television-wise, however, she's also appeared on The Six Million Dollar Man and has been on Call the Midwife as Sister Julianne since the show's inception. Jack Goodman, who was one of the other backpackers, was played by Griffin Dunn. Now, Griffin Dunn, he's acted in quite a few movies, but he's also produced and directed a lot of both on- and off-Broadway plays as well as other movies. I'm just going to give you a quick run of some of them. He's been in Other Side of the Mountain, The Fan, Johnny Dangerously, Almost You, The Big Blue. He was in My Girl, Stuck on You, and he also appeared in Dallas Buyers Club, which is a tremendous movie. Dr. J.S. Hirsch was played by John Woodvine. John Woodvine has been alive since 1929 and has been acting for a tremendously long time. Some of the things he has been in include The Walking Stick, The Devils, Spaghetti House, Trial, Vanity Fair, and Flick. However, he has over 70 productions on stage as well as many, many runs on television and on West End in London. He's had a very, very long career. Finally, Inspector Villiers was played by Don McKillop. Don McKillop passed away in 2005. He appeared in Sinister Men, Otley, Breaking a Bumbo, Hireling, and Walter. He only had six movies to his credit. As I mentioned earlier, Frank Oz, who is probably best known as the voice of Yoda while also being a Muppet, appeared as the character of Mr. Collins. Veteran actors Sidney Bromley, who passed away in 1987, best known for his run in Neverending Story, and Frank Sanguineau, who died in 1992, who was in Dr. No, that's one of the Sean Connery James Bond films, appeared as homeless victims of David, Alf, and Ted, respectively. Jeffrey Burridge, who passed in 1987, a prolific theater actor, appeared as Harry Berman, who was the underground passenger that was David's first on-screen victim, and Brian Glover, who passed in 1997, Best known for his role in the movie Alien 3. He is the bald preacher, like, not not Ken Forey, the other one from Alien 3 in the prison. He was the tough, chess-playing character in The Slaughtered Lamb, who is the one who warns them to stay off the moors. That's a guy who predominantly sticks within his wheelhouse. He's like, what is my best kind of thing to do? I play the, the bald, tough guy characters. And he did that to perfection up until his death. His final film that he completed was in 1996, and he passed in 1997. John Landis had come up with the story idea while he was in Yugoslavia. He was working on a film called Kelly's Heroes in 1970 as a production assistant. He and a local Yugoslav crewman were driving around on the closed set, and they happened to come across a group of gypsies who were performing rituals on a man who was being buried, so as to prevent him from, quote-unquote, rising from the grave. I don't think that's exactly what was being done. I think some of that could be chalked up to language issues and John Landis possibly not quite understanding what the guy was trying to tell him. There's been a lot of negative stereotypes over the many, many years in regards to gypsies and other ethnicities like that. In fact, you're not even supposed to call them gypsies. Uh, the proper term is Romani. But anyway, this got Landis thinking about how this is something he would never do. He'd never get to confront the dead. And he got the idea like in a film of a character doing that. He wrote his first draft of this at towards the tail end of 1969 or beginning of 1970, but shelved it shortly after that as he felt that he was not well known enough to garner the support to finance that film. Two years later, Landis would write, direct, and star in the film Schlock, which gained a cult following. And this led to his name value increasing 
and he produced the following films in order. The Kentucky Fried Movie, Animal House, and Blues Brothers. The tremendous success of the latter two of these allowed the now much more well-known Landis to dig the film out, work on it, shop it around, and get it ready. Most prospective financiers, however, were very hesitant as it was felt that this is one of those films, it's too, it's not, it's almost too frightening to be funny, while also too funny to be a horror film. Now, in today's world, this is nothing new. They have mixed comedy and horror quite well in movies since this movie has come out. But this was not unheard of at the time to do it in such a fashion. However, Landis was able to get Polygram Pictures to put up $10 million and secured Universal for the distribution rights. The $10 million, of course, would go towards budget, marketing, and production. Not a whole lot as far as casting notes for this film. Uh, John Landis chose to go with many veteran actors of both the stage and television for most of the cast. However, the two American characters, the lead character and his friend, this is where he met some resistance from Universal on those. Universal felt that without commercially well-known actors from the States, the film's box office return could potentially suffer. To that end, they were pressuring Landis to use more familiar, familiar American actors, including actors that he had worked with before, like John Candy, Harold Ramis, Kevin Bacon, and others. If it had been Kevin Bacon, ironically, this would have been like his second film, considering his, one of his first, earliest film uh, roles he ever did was in Animal House. John Landis disagreed with this. He was pretty adamant on what he wanted, and a short stalemate occurred for about two weeks. The studio tried one last time to get him to do what they wanted, and they appealed to him this time by going with his two, two of his favorite actors to work with. They wanted him to go with Dan Aykroyd, and John Belushi as David and Jack. Landis eventually won out on what he wanted to do and cast unknowns in this role. I think this is good that this happened. I am a big fan of both John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. I can't see them doing this movie. I just I just can't. Dan Aykroyd, um, the, man, the man just... And it's not to say that he can't do dramatic or non-comedic film roles, because his run in my, his movie that he made, My Girl, he does really good in that, and he's not trying to be funny, he's just socially awkward, which the real-life Dan Aykroyd, of course, is autistic. Take that, Elon Musk. I wasn't going to get off on this, but I can't help it. Uh, when Elon Musk guest-hosted Saturday Night Live last year, he said that he had officially become the first-ever guest host to be on the spectrum and this garnered a massive applause from the crowd dan Aykroyd, while also being an initial cast member on saturday night live had returned to host a couple of different times dan Aykroyd was the first host on the spectrum not elon musk elon you have more money than a thousand lifetimes could shake a stick at you don't need this one man you just you don't but no, back to what I was say, saying, I don't feel that Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi would have been a great choice for this. Um, I'll argue that, Jan, that John Belushi probably would have been fine as Jack because pretty much anything the man did he was good at, but I, just, I, I feel like they really went with the best kind of choice they could here. Filming was done relatively quickly from February to March of 1981 in about a six-week shoot. Now, that was done because John Landis wanted the film to take place in poor weather conditions. 
And in London, in the tail end of winter, it's overcast, dreary. It can rain or snow, depending on what it wants to do. And it just, it looks, yeah, it's, yeah. The Moors were filmed around the Black Mountains in Wales, while the village of East Proctor, which is the village that the backpackers get to at the beginning of the film, is in reality the village of Crickenern, which is a very small village. Uh, outside this village, they did erect a fake Angel of Death statue. However, the red phone booth that you see is a real phone booth, and they used a couple of small bushes to hide the village sign to say what village you were in. The Slaughtered Lamb pub's exterior was a small cottage in the village, while the interiors were shot in the Black Swan, Old Lane, and Martyr's Green pubs in Surrey. This was the first film allowed to shoot in Piccadilly Circus in over 15 years. To get that done... Now, it's difficult to shoot in something like that. Like, you, you can shoot a film in Times Square today if you get enough of a permit, but it's, it's difficult to pull that off without being a big enough name because you're essentially shutting down an entire city to do so. So in order to become the first film allowed to film on Piccadilly uh, Square, in Piccadilly Circus rather, Landis invited 300 members of the London Metropolitan Police Service to a special screening of the Blues Brothers. They were so overtly impressed with his work that they granted the production a special two-night filming permit that would allow them between the hours of 1 and 4 a.m. to film on Piccadilly Circus. They also did stop traffic for three three different times for two-minute intervals at a time in order to film any of the stunts that were involving the automobiles and especially the double-decker bus slaughter. <laughs> they did use other on-site locations as well. Uh, Putney General Hospital and Chiswick Maternity Hospital, in, uh, retrospectively, were used for, not retrospectively, I'm sorry, respectively, were used for the scene where David awakes in the hospital and also at the children's hospital side that the nurse works at. The Redcliffe Square and Carl's Court, Tower Bridge area, the Tottenham Court Road Underground Station, they also filmed in London Zoo, Putney High Street, Belgravia, and at Southport. They also used the Twickenham Film Studios in Richmond-upon-Thames to do scenes that involved interiors of apartments, the movie theater, and a couple of David's nightmare scenes as well. This is another one of those movies where we're going to talk about the music. It was scored by Elmer Bernstein, who passed in 2004. Elmer Bernstein has over 150 original film scores to his name. He has won an Academy Award. He has won a Primetime Emmy, seven Golden Globes, five Grammys, and was nominated for two different Tony Awards. Some of the films that he has scored for include Ten Commandments, To Kill a Mockingbird, Cape Fear, Ghostbusters, and Stripes. It was recorded at the Olympic Studios in London, and you'll hear his score in the nightmare scenes um, when the doctor's driving across the moor to get to East Proctor of the village, and in the penultimate scenes involving the werewolf in his rampage throughout Piccadilly Circus and down the alley. Bernstein also wrote a three-minute piece that would accompany the big transformation scene that was titled Metamorphosis. Landis chose not to use this, though it would eventually be released by Bernstein. Now, the reason Landis chose not to release uh, use that was because Landis wanted to juxtapose the uh, the score, which was done in a very almost just shy of sinister, but more than eerie tones. He wanted to juxtapose that with an with an ironically upbeat soundtrack. To that end, the opening credits you hear the Bobby Vinton version of Blue Moon. 
during scenes in the apartment involving David and the, uh, I'm escaping her name. I'm just going to call her the nurse for the moment. You hear Van Morrison's moon dance. And during the transformation, which if you've never seen this film, at the very least, go to YouTube, fire up YouTube, and look up the transformation scene from an American werewolf in London. If you watch that scene and it does not make you want to watch the movie, then you're clearly just not going to want to watch this movie. But Sam Cooke's much more somber approach at Blue Moon accompanies that scene. However, the most notable soundtrack moments to me include uh, CCR's Bad Moon Rising, which takes place during David's day leading up to his transformation in the apartment, and the doo-wop cover of Blue Moon, which plays over the credits at the end of the film after the very sudden, like, shock ending the way it goes. Like, it, you, you literally have no time to share any kind of emotion with anybody on this on the screen because it immediately jumps into a doo-wop cover of Blue Moon. Also of note, during one of his nightmare scenes, when David is at home, you can see that they are watching The Muppets on television. I believe that was done as a favor to Jim Henson and Frank Oz because Rick Baker and Jim Henson had worked together before on puppetry and effects and other things. Speaking of Rick Baker, Rick Baker did the effects for this film. He has won seven Academy Awards. Movies that he has done effects for include The Exorcist, the 1976 King Kong. He was on the, the head of the second unit for Star Wars, A New Hope. He's also in Howling. He did the effects for Thriller, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Coming to America, Wolf, Gremlins 2, and Harry and the Hendersons. Of those seven Academy Awards that he won Best Award for, Harry and the Hendersons is included in that, which I talked about that a little while ago. It was released on August 21st. Its opening weekend, it pulled in $3.7 million, and it ran for about five weeks total in the theater. In the United States, domestically, it pulled in $31.9 million and some change, while pulling in $29.9 million and some change international, bringing its total up to just shy of $62 million in return. Now, adjusted for inflation, this would be well over $130 million. This film was met with tremendous critical praise calling the film everything from delightfully disgusting the, the the comparison between the humor and the horror aspects were lauded as well it, it attained cult status very very quickly and one of the one of the few negatives I could ever I could find of anybody talking about this film was actually Roger Ebert who he didn't like it as much as some of his cameras. He only gave it two out of four stars and felt that certain scenes took him out of what he was watching and that while it was nice to see that you could mix comedy and horror together to success, he felt that at times Landis was a little too heavy-handed on that. I don't agree with that, obviously. This was the first ever film. This was won the first ever Academy Award for Best Makeup. It also won two Saturn Awards for Best Horror Film and Best Makeup. And in 2008, an Empire Magazine poll labeled it as the 107th greatest film of all time. This film has left quite a legacy behind it. It is considered a milestone in comedy horror. The signature transformation scene rather, was done with no computer effects whatsoever. It's purely practical effects in all regards, puppetry, you know, everything. If you watch this, you can almost feel the pain and that, that utter agony that David is in as his body is being contorted and changed around. 
you know, this film, because of its success with mixing horror and comedy together, it's believed that it kind of inspired, not necessarily the films themselves, of course, but it made them more comfortable mixing the two types of genres together for things like Beetlejuice, Gremlins, and The Evil Dead 2. And Edgar Wright, who is the director of Shaun of the Dead, has cited this film as a major inspiration to him as a filmmaker in general. Michael Jackson was a huge fan of this film. Because of that, he chose John Landis and Rick Baker to direct and do the effects for his music video for Thriller in 1983. Of course, Michael Jackson's music video for Thriller is considered one of the greatest music videos of all time. Now, it's not without its problems. John Landis has regretted certain things about the film since he has made it. He regretted toning down certain aspects of it in order to try and get that R rating, as well as several of the scenes he had to cut. Uh, he had to shorten an intimate scene between David and the nurse, for example. He had to cut the scene where the homeless people are attacked on the pier because test audiences did not really react to it all that well. He also had to cut a moment where Jack is trying to eat food, and as he takes a bite out of toast, some of the toast kind of dribbles out of his one of his gaping neck wounds, which sounds absolutely disgusting. So I can't. I guess I kind of understand why some people felt like he needed to cut that particular scene. Um, he also felt that the transformation scene probably should have been shorter. However, he was absolutely fascinated by Rick Baker's work, and just he felt like. He needed to record more of it to show more of it. This is another one of those films that has had, since it has come out, imitators, homages in other films. Um, honestly, probably one of the most successful homages I have seen for this is actually in the 1994 movie Wolf with Jack Nicholson, which I did talk about earlier on in, my, in this. It's not... The longest of episodes because there was not a whole lot of information available about it, but it was meant to be part of a bigger discussion that has yet to occur. So when that happens, I might actually redo that episode. I'm not sure yet. Um, to that end, it's had multiple homages and scenes in some of the worst werewolf things you have ever seen, including Wolf Cop, which that's the most attention I'm going to give that film. It did get a radio adaptation broadcasted on BBC One in 1997. Several original cult, uh, cast members did reprise their roles in that. However, they had to use in-house voice actors for the roles of David and Jack. A remake has often been proposed for this film, and probably the most legs it had at any point was when John Landis' son, Max Landis, began working on a script idea to remake it. Uh, he sought out pro producers, he sought out financial aid, everything he would need to do that, but it's just, as time has gone by, it has both whiffled and waffled as to whether that's going to happen. Most recently, in 2019, Robert Kirkman, of course, of The Walking Dead fame, was in consideration to write, produce, and direct a remake of An American Werewolf in London. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, it also did spawn a sequel. The sequel is called An American Werewolf in Paris. Not a single original cast member returns. The werewolves are treated entirely differently. The transformations are different. They were able to do computer effects, so that's what they heavily went with. And the only way you know this is a sequel 
is that the lead female's mother is implied to be the nurse from an American werewolf in London. There's also a brief moment where they happen to mention like what they think, like this happened to a guy that was a friend of mine kind of thing, which is that that's something they've done in a lot of other movies where so-and-so knew this, so-and-so knew that. Probably the most notable one to me is in Anaconda's Hunt for the Blood Orchid when their boat goes over the waterfall and they are forced to walk on foot. One of them says, I knew this guy who has a cousin who was a film uh, film assistant who recorded some guys who were doing in the Amazon and damn near all of them got killed by snakes. Which is kind of a, a neat little like throwaway ha-ha thing to try and tie it in. But An American Werewolf in Paris is just objectively a bad film. From all respects, from the acting to the action to the effects, it's not good at all. And I'm not going to lie, I own it. I do. <laughs> I have watched it within the last eight years. It is still not good. Um, if you're going to watch one of these movies, absolutely please watch An American Werewolf in London. The first time I ever saw this movie, I was about eight years old. AMC would do their 30 Days of Halloween movies that they would do. This was one of the movies they did. So I watched it on television. And I remember vividly that the nightmare scenes scared the crap out of me. But also because I've always been a werewolf fan in general, I was very intrigued by, oh, it's a werewolf movie. The transformation looked so real to me as a kid. And even today, still holds up tremendously. I'm not kidding. If you've never seen the film or never seen anything about it, by all means, please, go to YouTube, pull up just the transformation scene, and watch that. It is so well done. Probably the only other thing I've seen do in remotely similar fashion, as far as whether I've liked it or disliked it, was in the Benicio Del Toro Wolfman movie. Which is another movie that does not get the credit it deserves, and I will probably do an episode on it at some point. Maybe around Halloween, I'm not sure. But I'll never forget, because I was also a fan of Creedence Clearwater Revival. Like I was a fan of all these different things that I was seeing on, t on this television, on this movie. It all worked so well together, and I absolutely I loved it. I was equal parts scared and enjoying it, to the point that I have owned it on VHS, I have owned it on Laserdisc, and I now own it on DVD. And I will probably get it on Blu-ray, because it was recently released on Blu-ray. Now, there is some... Debate in the collector's world, and I say some debate because it's very, very, very lessly done. Like, it's not a big kind of debate at all. But there are some people who feel that owning more than one of the same thing is not necessarily required. And I believe the term for it is double dipping. I have a problem with that. Um, I have nine different copies of The Hobbit. All nine of them are different covers. They'll have different art. And probably most significantly, the most recent copy that I bought, somebody translated the entire book into Latin. I do not speak Latin. But you're damn right I bought that book. To not want to have multiple copies of the same thing. Like some people, like myself, genuinely enjoy being able to look at different covers of things. They're seeing different artists Artist renditions of what we get. By the logic of double dipping is unnecessary and you shouldn't do that kind of thing. 
then if you're going to have, like, if you have, if you collect action figures and you have an action figure of Superman, by that argument, there's no reason for you to get any other action figures of any other incarnations of Superman because, well, I've already got one. Well, the problem therein is that just the Clark Kent Kal-El Superman, there have been at least a dozen variations of that character throughout the comics history. Not in, not even including any characters that are like his alternate universe counterparts, children, etc. I'm getting off topic here. My, my main point is that even though I own it on DVD, I will probably be getting it on Blu-ray at some point. I have nothing negative I can say about the film. I rewatch it. You know, I don't just rewatch it around Halloween either. I have rewatched it just in the middle of March because I felt like watching it before. It, it, it holds up to this day, even being a 41-year-old movie now. And I had, I just, if it's something you have seen, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If it's something you like, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not for everybody. Um, not everybody likes werewolf films. That's just how that is. But if you are in any way, shape, or form a film fan, like if you are a movie buff, this is one of those movies that's on that list of movies that you should watch. I love it. I rewatch it. I enjoy looking into it. There's an excellent documentary about the making of the film that you can find on YouTube for free. There's also multiple books that you can buy about the making of it that come with other documentary features of that. And there's even one that draws some very interesting correlations between the idea of David as a werewolf and everything with Judaism. And it's just one of those things that, you know, it, it has a lot of subtext you can read in, a lot of allegories you can read into. And you can even just shut your brain off and watch it and enjoy what you're watching. So this was An American Werewolf in London. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Next week, I will be doing the first live-action film of a Hanna-Barbera cartoon series, The Flintstones. I love that movie and have loved that movie my entire life, just about. Um, I don't really care for the sequel that was a prequel, Viva Rock Vegas. Now, had that come out before the Flintstones, the first one did, I may feel different about that, and I am borrowing that sentiment, honestly, from Cal the Kaiju guy, because he feels the same way. But it's also, that movie has made me long for a live-action Jetsons movie, which, considering this is the year that George Jetson is born, canonically, um, they need to get a move on. So, but anyway... This was an American Werewolf in London. Next week, I'll be talking about the Flintstones, and I will not be alone for that episode. I will be joined by, at the very least, one, but possibly two people for that. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, it's recently been put back on Netflix. If you have Netflix, go watch it in, pre in preparation for it if you want. As always, I thank you for listening. I hope you had a good time. I am Kid Kong. I will see you at the movies.